Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. First Nephi, chapter 21. This is the second of two Isaiah chapters that Nephi is reading to his family. We learn this at the end of First Nephi, chapter 19, where Nephi says, It came to pass that I did read many things unto them, which were engraven upon the plates of brass, that they might know concerning the doings of the Lord in other lands among people of old. Nephi is listing this, really, as the next main event in the narrative once his family has arrived at the Promised Land, giving us a sense for the importance of the brass plates and, of course, the role of Isaiah inside of them. This chapter corresponds with Isaiah chapter 49 in the Old Testament, but with a critical additional passage in verse 1. This addition at the very beginning of the chapter, which we'll talk about, clarifies who it is that is culpable for the scattering of Israel. We discussed errant Israel in the previous chapter, reading about those in verse 1 who, quote, swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, yet they swear not in truth nor in righteousness. But this chapter, chapter 49, or 1 Nephi chapter 21, is addressed specifically to the lost and the scattered of Israel due to the corruption of the church in the old world. And that's something that McConkie and Millet explained that we'll read about later. We can call upon our previous reading of Nephi's vision, especially in 1 Nephi chapter 14, to understand how this could be. If there are two main messages of this chapter, it would be first that there is a promised servant that will deliver this scattered remnant. And the other is that a gathering will occur and that this servant will not forget. This servant, as he is called in verse 5, will be described in many key ways in the first eight verses of this chapter. Once Isaiah does this, he turns or pivots and focuses on the lost of Israel and how it is that they will be gathered. The pivot point for this seems to be in verse 8, because Isaiah points out a covenant. We can understand that it, it is the covenant relationship between Israel and this great servant that makes everything else possible that we will read about in the remainder of this chapter. This will cause a gathering to commence, and in verse 12, we find that Israel will come from afar This will be a joyous occasion that will cause, as it says in verse 13, even the heavens and the earth to be joyful and sing, as though it is linked somehow to their end of creation. We'll have an opportunity to discuss that in more detail. 
Isaiah then seems to anticipate any doubts that we may have as readers. He preempts them for us and expresses them in the form of three complaints. The first is found in verse 14. The complaint or the doubt or the concern that we might hold as readers and that Israel generally would hold after having read this much is that how can this be possible? Uh, For as it says in verse 14, my Lord hath forgotten me. And then as with the other two complaints, Isaiah provides a poetic and beautiful and memorable response to this concern. The second complaint is in verse 21, and it builds on the first, saying that not only are the children of Israel forgotten, but they also are lost. That concern will be answered in a very specific and beautiful way that's instructive to us and our role in the gathering of Israel in verse 22. The final complaint or concern in verse 24 seems to say, we've established then that the scattered of Israel are not forgotten. We've also established then that they're not truly lost. However, what do we do about the fact that they are captive? So in verse 24 it says, For shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captives delivered? How then can this third concern be addressed? That answer comes in the final two verses of this chapter, verses 25 and 26. With that introduction, let's move now to the first verse. And before reading that verse, here's an interesting comment from Wilfred Woodruff, who said, quote, The revelations that are in the Bible, the predictions of the patriarchs and prophets, who saw by vision and revelation the last dispensation and fullness of times, plainly tell us what is to come to pass. The 49th chapter of Isaiah is having its fulfillment. And now we begin our reading of the 49th chapter of Isaiah, but with this critical addition that I mentioned previously in verse 1. It says, And again, hearken, O ye house of Israel, all ye that are broken off and are driven out because of the wickedness of the pastors of my people. All ye that are broken off, that are scattered abroad, who are of my people, O house of Israel. This is the section that is added to the Isaiah 49 of the Old Testament. Uh, McConkie and Millet said this, This is a significant textual restoration. It establishes that though the prophet is addressing all the house of Israel, his message is more especially for that part of Israel that had been scattered, not through their own wickedness, but because of the corruption of the church in the old world. It was this corruption of the church and the temple priesthood that caused Lehi and his family to flee. Continuing with verse 1, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. Again, the problem is clearly stated with this inclusion. The house of Israel is scattered. They are broken off. When Isaiah uses the phrase broken off at the very beginning of this verse, we might think of broken branches branches off of the olive tree that can later be grafted in, but the problem as it's being stated now is that they have been broken off of the mother tree. This has happened, as it says, because of the wickedness of the pastors of my people. This seems to tell us something about the mechanism 
of the apostasy and the scattering that uh, precedes the gathering of the last days, that there are those who once held the priesthood who did not, as the Savior instructed Peter, feed his sheep in the appropriate way. As a result, corruption and apostasy entered the early church, and then we see the confluence between that church and the great and terrible filthy river of the great and abominable church from that point forward. When Isaiah says, Listen, O isles, unto me, we can take isles to mean any habitable ground or dry land, just as opposed to water. So this would include continents as we see them today, as opposed to islands as we see them. We often refer to Jeremiah as a reference point to the concept of a pre-earth life and of the possibility of foreordination, when in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. There's a very similar expression here in verse 1 of First uh, Nephi chapter 21 or Isaiah chapter 49, where it says, The Lord hath called me from the womb. And then in a parallel expression, From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. So there are two subjects in this verse. First, it is the house of Israel that has been broken off, branches broken off of the olive tree. They are being addressed. And then the subject turns to this servant that was clearly foreordained. This is someone who is a polished shaft that has the power to deliver or to gather. It is most useful, I believe, to take this primarily as the Savior, although there are those who suggest that this could be interpreted as another servant as well, uh, possibly even the prophet Joseph Smith. I like to think of the teachings in Doctrine and Covenants section 93 that help us understand that the Savior himself, uh, as a young Jesus of Nazareth, had the task of growing from grace to grace. In so doing, I can imagine him, in his study of Scripture, encountering this chapter of Isaiah and discovering more about himself and his calling. If this is true, then we can imagine that the Lord's affinity for the writings of Isaiah, as he expresses that later in 3 Nephi, runs even deeper than we might imagine because it could be that Isaiah and his writings were there for Jesus of Nazareth as he progressed. Perhaps in a way they were written directly to him primarily, and he was able to read them and to come to an understanding uh, of who he was. So before leaving this verse, we can summarize it once again by saying that a problem is set up, and it is the breaking off of these branches of the tree of Israel. And it happened because of the wickedness of the stewards, the pastors of the church. And the solution is this great servant who's been foreordained to fulfill this purpose. Let's learn more about this servant then in verse 2. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. Again, I like to think primarily of the Savior when reading this, 
But you can see how this is a description of anyone who has been foreordained and who, through the power of delegated priesthood, can be an effective instrument in the hands of the Lord, such as Joseph Smith. And the concept can be applied even more broadly to anyone, male or female, who has the great privilege of acting as an instrument in the Lord's hands. When verse 2 says that this servant's mouth is like a sharp sword, we can't help but think about the vision of John and his vision of the Savior and how the sharp word was coming from his mouth as like a sword. There are many verses in Scripture that help us to understand the word of the Lord in this way. Here's a summary by Hoyt Brewster from a book called Isaiah, Plain and Simple. A two-edged sword is one which has been sharpened on both sides to make it twice as effective. God's word and the still small voice of the Spirit are even sharper than this, for they are capable of piercing the most pernicious armament and of penetrating to the innermost depths of one's soul. When the Lord or his servants speak with the sharpness of the sword of their mouths, the guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. The phrase polished shaft in verse 2 is curious because the image is as though this is an arrow that is inside of a quiver. Uh, because it will say polished shaft in his quiver that he hid me, that he hath hid me. But why polished? Uh, We would want that shaft to fly straight and true. So perhaps that is the, the utility in it being polished. Here's something that Joseph Smith once said that is is related to this in an interesting way. I am like a huge rough stone rolling down from a high mountain, and the only polishing I get is when some corner gets rubbed off by coming in contact with something else, striking with accelerated force against rebellious bigotry, priestcraft, lawyercraft, doctorcraft, lying editors, suborned judges and jurors, and the authority of perjured executives, backed by mobs, blasphemers, licentious and corrupt men and women, all hell knocking off a corner here and a corner there. Thus I will become a smooth and polished shaft in the quiver of the Almighty, who will give me dominion over all and every one of them when their refuge of lies shall fail, and their hiding place shall be destroyed, while these smooth, polished stones with which I come in contact become marred. The verbiage here is of of even more interest, I think, when it says that his quiver he hath hid me, Uh, not just stored me, but hid me, suggesting that this servant has been hidden or protected until the appropriate time. Now we'll read more about this servant in verse 3. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. Verse 5, And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb, that I should be a servant, so restating that idea of ordination, to bring Jacob again to him. And and we don't want to let that phrase uh, go unnoticed. To bring Jacob unto him is another way of saying that Israel will be gathered. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. So there may be a misplaced comma there, because it says, Though Israel be not gathered, comma, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. Perhaps we could read that by displacing the comma, 
by one word, so that it says, Though Israel be not gathered yet, shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. When we think of this servant as Joseph Smith, which of course is also perfectly appropriate, and we read that this servant will be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, it's interesting to read this phrase in Doctrine and Covenants section 122, verse 1 through 2. Fools shall have thee in derision, and hell shall rage against thee, while the pure in heart and the wise and the noble and the virtuous shall seek counsel and authority and blessings constantly from under thy hand, unquote. And the Lord had told Joseph earlier, this is in Liberty Jail, by the way, and God shall exalt thee on high. That's in section 121. This all would have seemed very implausible to Joseph when he was in this prison state, imprisoned state. Then verse 6, And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. The word light here, it almost seems like a play on words, where the Lord says, It's a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant. Perhaps as if to say, This is something that is well within my ability to make happen. And then later in the verse, he says, It's a light thing for me, and because of that, I will make thee a light to the Gentiles. Donald Perry had this to say about the meaning of light to the Gentiles. The light to the Gentiles is variously defined in the scriptures as Jesus Christ, the priesthood, and Zion. Uh, That latter reference to Zion is in Isaiah chapter 60, and the priesthood uh, as the light comes from Doctrine and Covenants section 86. Then Brother Perry says, If the servant referred to this section is not the Messiah himself, he certainly will shine with the light of the Messiah. And I would hasten to add, if I haven't made this clear already, is that there is probably not one correct interpretation of who the servant is as we read this, but it can have multiple interpretations and and should have multiple interpretations. The Messiah is one, Joseph Smith is another, and really Isaiah himself is another possible interpretation of this servant. In other words, and this is a way that many Bible scholars will read this, this is autobiographical on Isaiah's part. Now we come to a theme in verse 7 that Isaiah will expand upon at other times, and most notably in Isaiah chapter 53, which is sometimes referred to as the song of the suffering servant. But here in verse 7, we see how this servant will be received by the world. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nations abhorreth, to servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful. As Isaiah often does, he is combining phenomena that happen in different epochs, different eras of time. Within the same verse, he's talking about the Holy One of Israel being despised by man and despised by nations. But then later, kings shall see him and arise, and princes also shall worship. Worship. That undoubtedly is because Isaiah is seeing things across a broad time frame. 
It's somewhat like his very famous verse in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Then there's a colon and the word and, as though this would immediately follow, but we know that this won't follow until the very end. It says, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So there's a compression of events, a compression of time, as Isaiah is expressing this. And by the way, that particular verse can also be interpreted as Isaiah, as some will say. We, of course, take it to be messianic, and and well, we should. But coming back to verse 7 then, we're learning how this servant is initially regarded by the world, but how ultimately he will be respected by kings and princes. Now comes the message to those who are scattered in verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, O isles of the sea, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee my servant for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. So we've just talked about time and the passage of time and how it can be that in one era, The Lord is not well regarded by the kings of the earth, and in another, he is. And in this verse, the Lord is saying that in an acceptable time have I heard thee. So at the right time, this gathering will commence, and it will reach even to the isles of the sea. This will be the day of salvation. We can know as modern readers that that day of salvation is here. And although Jesus Christ and his kingdom is not universally recognized by all the kings and princes of of the earth yet, uh, this great gathering most certainly has occurred. We have many reasons for knowing this, and one of those is that the Book of Mormon has come to the earth. We've been told that that is a sign that the gathering has begun, something we'll be able to talk about later. Here is where we learn again that there's a covenant relationship between Israel and this great delivering servant. The one who is mighty to save and who most certainly will save in an acceptable time in the day of salvation. The result of all of this, as we can see in verse 8, is inheritance. It says that these who are linked to the Lord by covenant, when this day comes, will be caused to inherit Then this phrase, the desolate heritages. Uh, Here again is from Brewster, Isaiah Plain and Simple. In considering these words, one would naturally think of the great promises made to Israel that she will inhabit and restore once fruitful lands that have long laid desolate. There may, however, be a far more significant meaning attached to this phrase. During their long years of apostasy, have not the children of Israel been deprived of the heritage that might have been theirs had they been worthy. Thus, when they repent and return, will they not then inherit the heritage that has long been desolate? That provides us then with a spiritual interpretation and a covenant interpretation of that phrase, desolate heritages, and that they will be inherited. Then this image is extended further in verse 9 so that we can see that this gathering, uh, these broken branches, Uh, that they are something like prisoners that will be delivered. Verse 9, That thou mayest say to the prisoners, 
Go forth to them that sit in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. So this servant, as it tells us in verse 9, will go forth, and undoubtedly this can apply to other servants with delegated priesthood power who can go forth and cross this great gulf for this divide that was portrayed in the vision for the redemption of the dead uh, to Joseph F. Smith, telling us that this liberation of the captive, these broken branches, this work, this, this gathering, is taking place on both sides of the veil, as President Nelson is fond of telling us. Here's another piece of commentary from Isaiah, plain and simple, from Hoyt Brewster. The prisoners spoken of are those who are presently confined to a spirit prison or state of misery. These are they who chose evil works rather than good during their earthly sojourn. Following his death on Calvary, the disembodied Christ went to the spirit world where he organized his righteous followers into a missionary task force to take the gospel to those in the spirit prison. As these confined spirits accepted the gospel, and as saving ordinances are performed in their behalf in holy temples here on earth, the prisoners are set free. This connection between Isaiah and those who are imprisoned in the spirit world is especially remarkable to consider when we read verse 42 of Doctrine and Covenants section 138, which again is Joseph F. Smith's vision of the redemption of the dead. He said in verse 42, And Isaiah, who declared by prophecy that the Redeemer was anointed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that were bound, were also there. Meaning that in this great vision, Joseph F. Smith also saw Isaiah there. This image of liberation and redemption for these that are imprisoned continues into verse 10 saying, they shall not hunger nor thirst. And we might think of that spiritually. We might think of the hunger that was satiated through manna, but that that was also connected to the bread of life. And they shall not hunger nor thirst. And we can also think of the sacrament and how it is that bread might address our hunger, whereas water addresses our thirst. Then the verse continues, Neither shall the heat nor the sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. We can think at this point of Nephi reading this passage to his family. We can imagine how this would speak to those who can relate with exile in the desert. This gives us yet another reason to see why Nephi was so drawn to this chapter and why he might be including it here. Donald Perry commented that this passage refers to the Lord's blessings to those who are returning from exile, as well as to those returning from spiritual bondage. Whether in physical or spiritual captivity, they suffer both hunger and thirst, and the heat and sun threaten them. In their deliverance, the Lord protects and nourishes them. In all circumstances, it is only through Christ that our spiritual hunger can be satisfied. Now the imagery continues in verses 11 and 12 as we consider this gathering. And I will make all my mountains away, and my highways shall be exalted. On another occasion in Isaiah chapter 62 verse 10, he will say, Go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. 
Then he says in verse 12, And then, O house of Israel, behold, these shall come from far, and lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. And again, who are these? It is those who are scattered. It is those branches that are broken from the mother tree. Isaiah said something similar in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 5. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. There are a few interesting interpretations of land of Sinim in this verse, uh, but for our purposes, we can think of this as being an expression uh, that means that these people will be gathered from very, very far, uh, both physically and spiritually. President Russell M. Nelson has said, This doctrine of the gathering is one of the important teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The coming forth of the Book of Mormon is a sign to the entire world that the Lord has commenced to gather Israel and fulfill covenants he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We not only teach this doctrine, but we participate in it. We do so as we help to gather the elect of the Lord on both sides of the veil. Now we move into the latter half of this chapter, which talks about this covenant, this aforementioned covenant, being fulfilled and Israel truly being restored. This section begins in verse 13 with a rather curious personification of the heavens and the earth that we'll talk about in a moment. First, here's the verse. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, for the feet of those who are in the east shall be established, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for they shall be smitten no more, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. Why would Isaiah personify the earth and the heavens in this poetic way? Why would they sing? What would make the earth to sing? This might make us think of the way that scripturally the earth does have its own story arc. It does have its own end and purpose of creation. This purpose seems to coincide with the work and the glory of the Lord that we read about in Moses chapter 1 verse 39. It is the canvas or the backdrop for the scene of mortality uh, so that the immortality and eternal life of all mankind can be worked out. Malachi teaches us at the end of the Old Testament that if this work of linking all mankind to the Son of Righteousness who will appear with healing in his wings, if this linking doesn't occur, which is another way of expressing the bringing about of the immortality and eternal life of mankind, then the earth would be utterly wasted at the coming of the Lord. And President Nelson has said that the earth was created that families may be. So the earth is personified in this passage, and it is made joyful upon discovering that these scattered branches will be gathered, or, as the verse says, that the feet of those who are in the east shall be established. And, and then Isaiah says that the mountains will break forth into singing. Uh, first it's the heavens that sing, and the earth is joyful. Then the mountains break forth into singing. For they shall be smitten no more. All of this is giving us the idea that these marvelous creations of the Lord, that this earth 
is best honored when it can fulfill the measure of its creation, and that the measure of its creation is to facilitate the bringing about of the immortality and the eternal life of man, and the linking together of families through covenants. We read of the joy of seeing or witnessing the feet of those who are in the east, as it says in verse 13. We get more insight into this when we read Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Then again, the final phrase in this verse, which is presented in what we could call perfect tense, uh, because it reads like past tense, the Lord hath comforted his people. Well, that that's a very beautiful way of assuring us that this will happen uh, completely by using that perfect tense. And then we'll have mercy upon his afflicted. Here's a beautiful statement from Psalm 18, verse 27. For thou wilt save the afflicted people, but wilt bring down high looks. Now in verse 14, we come to the first test, we might say, of this covenant, of the strength of this covenant relationship between Israel and the Redeemer, and the first test of the strength and the will of the Redeemer. It's tested then with this challenge in verse 14. But behold, Zion hath said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me, And then the response to that, but he will show that he hath not. And so this covenant relationship is so strong and the Redeemer is so mighty that we will see that he hath not forsaken Zion. He hath not forgotten Zion. And he will show that he hath not. Now Isaiah will show us that he hath not with this beautiful poetic imagery. Verse 15 For can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee, O house of Israel. We can think of all that is implied by this image, a mother who has nursed and nourished her child. The odds that she would ever forget her child are very low, In the most fundamental way, it is not in a mother's nature to forget her sucking child. And that indeed is the point, that it is not in the Lord's nature to forget Israel, and that speaks to the strength of his covenant. How could Isaiah have chosen a more poignant or beautiful image? How could he have told us in any more effective language that the Lord will not forget these broken branches? The writer of Psalm 103 called upon the paternal connection between father and child to illustrate the Lord's love. It says in verse 13, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. That's a similar literary device, but here Isaiah, in using this image of a nursing mother, helps to illustrate this with even more depth of feeling. And then says this in verse 16, Behold, 
I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. This is a message to the house of Israel collectively, but it is also a message to each of us individually uh, because we know what the source of this image of the palms on his hands is. We read in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. We can learn a great deal by pondering the relationship between this beautiful expression and the idea that the Lord would make bare his holy arm. And we'll have an opportunity to talk about that later. And and how that can relate to the experience of the brother of Jared, actually. We can also think about the expression that the Son of Righteousness will come with healing in his wings. In that case, we might interpret his wings to be his appendages, his outstretched hands, and the palms that have these marks. With that in mind, we can set aside the usual lesson that we take from the Thomas incident and his tendency towards doubt before he received the evidence that he sought. But we can set that aside and simply look at what it is that he sought. In verse 25, he says, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Why did Thomas want this? Again, setting the issue of any doubt aside, Notice how he had a personal conviction that the Lord had engraven him upon the palms of his hands. As Isaiah says here, 3 Nephi chapter 11, verses 13 through 17 record this incident. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto them, saying, Arise, and come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth and have been slain for the sins of the world. And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do going forth one by one until they had all gone forth and did see with their eyes and did fill with their hands and did know of a surety and did bear record that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. And when they had all gone forth and had witnessed for themselves, they did cry out with one accord, saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. Returning more broadly to this beautiful passage and considering its meaning, we have this commentary from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. This poetic passage provides yet another reminder of Christ's saving role that of protective, redeeming parent uh, to Zion's children. He comforts his people and shows mercy when they are afflicted, as any loving father or mother would toward a child. But as Nephi here reminds us through Isaiah, much more than any mortal father and mother could do, although a mother may forget her sucking child, as unlikely as any parent might think that could be, Christ will not forget the children he has redeemed, or the covenant he has made with them for salvation in Zion. The painful reminders of that watch care and covenant are the marks of the Roman nails graven upon the palms of his hands 
assigned to his disciples in the old world, his Nephite congregation in the new world, and to us in Latter-day Zion that he is the Savior of the world and was wounded in the house of his friends. Now we move to verse 17, and with the use of this uh, phrase, thy children, we're reminded of the timing of the fulfillment of these prophecies and how it can span far into the future for its fulfillment. Thy children shall make haste against thy destroyers, and they that made thee waste shall go forth of thee. So when will this be? Well, it seems to be uh, something that will happen for thy children. Uh, Or in other words, it may be that it is in future generations that these things will be resolved. 3 Nephi chapter 21 verse 13 says, Their hand shall be lifted up upon their adversaries, and all their enemies shall be cut off. Now in verse 18, Isaiah says, Lift up thine eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together, and they shall come to thee. And as I live, saith the Lord, thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all, as with an ornament, and bind them on even as a bride. There's the word gather in verse 18. And what will this gathering look like? Well, we find that those who are scattered will gather themselves together. They shall come to thee. So we're mixing metaphors, we're mixing images, and we're learning more as we do so. We've learned at other times about an olive tree that loses its branches or whose branches are broken. But here we find that those branches will come unto the tree They will be attracted to the mother tree. They will come of their own volition as a result. And then we get a new image, and that is that of of a bride. So we might think of it as a parallel analogy to the grafting in of the olive tree, uh, where uh, they are bound, even as a bride, and that the house of Israel is clothed with all of them as with an ornament. Here's a very insightful statement out of a piece called The Marriage Metaphor by Heart. Israel, therefore, has more than one meaning. There is no divine discrimination except with respect to righteousness, which is the key to being one of the Lord's chosen. While lineal Israel was initially the Lord's betrothed, by the time the marriage takes place, many will have lost their birthright. Others, not Israelite by birth, will have been adopted in with full family status. The symbolic bride, then, will consist of those individuals who have accepted the Lord by individual covenant. And again, this is the thing that we'll learn later in the great olive tree and Jacob olive tree allegory in Jacob chapter 5, that lineal descendancy is not the only thing. Uh, the thing is the covenant. Now in verses 19 through 21, we turn to the question of where these lost and scattered actually are. And that's a spiritual and a temporal question. Verse 19, For thy waste and thy desolate places, and the land of thy destruction, shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants, and they that swallowed thee up shall be far away. Isaiah is telling us then that at this point of gathering, the dwelling place for these inhabitants can't contain them. It's too narrow. And verse 20 reminds us of future generations uh, that will facilitate this prophecy uh, through their covenant. It says, The children whom thou shalt have, after thou hast lost the first, shall again in thine ears say, The place is too straight for me. 
Give place to me that I may dwell. Spiritually speaking, this might be a way uh, for these future generations to say, I need more. There is more truth. I want the fullness of the gospel. The place is too straight for me. This is helpful from McConkie and Millet. The place of gathering has been established, and there is none other place appointed, we are told, until the day cometh when there is found no more room for them. And then I have other places which I will appoint unto them, and they shall be called stakes, for the curtains of the strength of Zion. The stakes of Zion are the gathering places for latter-day Israel. Now we come in verse 21 to the second challenge to this concept of a strong covenant and a capable redeemer. Isaiah is preempting our concern as readers who at this point might say, yes, I see that he will not forget, but they're lost. What about the fact that these scattered are lost? And so in verse 21, it says, Then shalt thou say in thine heart, Who hath begotten me these, seeing I have lost my children, and am desolate, a captive, and removing to and fro? And who hath brought up these? Behold, I was left alone, these. Where have they been? When we see the word thou, then, at the beginning of this verse, we can see that Israel is is like a collective uh, it's being personified as a single person who says something in his heart. But in a way, it's also Isaiah addressing us as the reader. So, as this verse expresses, these broken branches are gone. They're scattered. Where have they been, as it says at the end of the verse? Or where do they go? How can they be gathered when they are so thoroughly lost? Well, here is the answer then. In verse 22, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles, and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face towards the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt, thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. So these that are so thoroughly lost can be gathered, and the mechanism is through the Gentiles. So this brings us back to this expression that Nephi offered us at the end of his visionary chapter. In First Nephi chapter 13, when he said that then he shall manifest himself unto the Gentiles, and also unto the Jews, and the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Here Isaiah explains what the last being first looks like. It means that the Gentiles, who were the last to receive the gospel in the meridian of time, are in this case the first, and they will be armed with the covenant. And once they do so, this will set up a standard that will allow future generations as it was previously expressed in these verses, to come of their own volition to the tree and to gather to it. Being bound to it as ornaments, to use the earlier metaphor, or as a bride to the bridegroom. Donald Perry said, As the Lord begins the gathering, he will follow a prophesied sequence. 
First, he will bring the gospel forth to the Gentiles. The Gentiles then have a responsibility to take it to all the nations of the world. Finally, the testimony of Christ will go to the Jews. As Isaiah saw, through the Gentiles, the Lord would set up my standard to the people. It would be through the ministrations of the Gentiles that the generality of the house of Israel would come to the gospel. This is such a beautiful expression in verse 23 that kings shall be thy nursing fathers and and their queens thy nursing mothers. Uh, There's a lot that is implied in that. On the surface, it looks as as though it's something completely implausible. It's a role reversal, really. This is from the Book of Mormon Institute Manual. Nephi explained that the Lord would raise up a Gentile nation to nurse scattered Israel. As part of the fulfillment of this prophecy, the gospel was restored in the United States of America, a Gentile nation. The gospel is the Lord's standard to the people, restoring the new and everlasting covenant to the children of men, and feeding the need of spiritually famished Israel, and we can remember Amos' statement there, scattered throughout the world. The analogy of the restoration of the gospel is that of a feast of fat things taken to the world to nurse them to spiritual health. Here's something from Monty S. Nyman. From Nephi we learn that kings and queens are representative of the Gentiles among whom the house of Israel was scattered. We also learn that there is a temporal and a figurative or spiritual fulfillment of Israel's nursing by the Gentiles. The temporal fulfillment refers to various attempts, public and private, to assist the Lamanites in the afflictions that followed their scattering. The spiritual fulfillment refers to the marvelous work among the Gentiles that would nourish the Lamanites. We are living in the day when this prophecy and others of the prophet Isaiah are being fulfilled. Jesus taught the Nephites that when the words of Isaiah should be fulfilled, then is the fulfilling of the covenant which the Father hath made unto his people, O house of Israel. And that comes from 3 Nephi chapter 20, verses 11 through 12. So with that challenge being answered then, how is it that those who are so thoroughly lost can be gathered We have the third challenge that is mounted here in verse 24, or the complaint of Israel. It says, For shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captives delivered? As if to say, I can see that the Lord remembers. I can see that these lost can be gathered, but they are captive. What is to be done about that? Verse 25 has the answer. But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. When he says, I will in this way, it's almost as if to say, as impossible as it may now seem, I will. No wonder we see the phrase in verse 23, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. It is necessary to wait for him, uh, but these things will take place. Then the final verse of the chapter, And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh. They shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Jacob, Nephi's brother, will... Um, clarify this statement later in 2 Nephi chapter 6, verse 14. He'll say, 
And behold, according to the words of the prophet, the Messiah will set himself again the second time to recover them. Wherefore, he will manifest himself unto them in power and great glory, unto the destruction of their enemies. When that day cometh, when they shall believe in him, and none will he destroy that believe in him. While we have come to the end of this chapter, I want to take the opportunity here to use some commentary to step up a level in altitude and take a look again at this chapter in its entirety now that we've traveled through it. I want to spend a moment and summarize this special servant that we learned about at the beginning of the chapter and then again to look at these three complaints because of the great insight that they bring. So first, the special servant. And I'm going to read this from the Ogden Skinner commentary. Isaiah announced a special servant of God who would come forward in the future, possessing several significant and unusual characteristics. Originally recorded in Isaiah 49, Nephi describes again this prophetic figure. He would be someone whom the Lord hath called from the womb. And that comes from verse 1 of this chapter. Someone who would say that the Lord formed me from the womb to do a special work. Or in other words, someone who knew that he had been foreordained. That comes from verse 5. Whose mouth was like a sharp sword. Or in other words, someone who spoke with authority. And we read that in verse 2. Who was hidden in the shadow of the Lord's hand, which we also read in verse 2. Who has made a polished shaft in his quiver, hath he the Lord hid him. In verse 2 who would say, I have labored in vain, in verse 4, who would authoritatively say, and now saith the Lord, in verse 5, whose life's work would be to bring Jacob again to the Lord, though Israel be not gathered, it's in verse 5, who would be the Lord's servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel, that's in verse 6, whom the Lord would give for a light to the Gentiles, verse 6, whom man despiseth, but at the same time someone whom kings shall see and arise, princes also worship, in verse 7, who will be given to Israel for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, who will free the prisoners and enlighten those who sit in darkness, and who will shepherd the chosen people. And that's in verses 8 through 9. Though various specific aspects of this list could probably fit a number of individuals. Taken together, they apply really only to two beings. One is obviously Jesus, but the other is Joseph Smith. Consider the following. Joseph Smith was indeed called from the womb or foreordained. He knew through Revelation, now recorded as Doctrine and Covenants 127 verse 2, that he had been chosen to be the prophet of the Restoration. On another occasion, he also said, Every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in the grand council of heaven before the world was. I suppose that I was ordained to this very office in that grand council. It is the testimony that I want, that I am God's servant and this people, his people. Joseph Smith spoke as a sharp sword because he spoke the words of the Lord, which are described in modern revelation as quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, to the dividing asunder of both joints and marrow. That comes out of DNC section 6, verse 2. Joseph Smith was hid by the Lord. And we read about that in Doctrine and Covenants section 86, verse 9. 
Joseph Smith became a polished shaft in the quiver of the Almighty, as his own characterization of himself testifies. And we read from that commentary earlier. Joseph Smith at times became discouraged and felt that he labored in vain, which we find in Doctrine and Covenants 121, verse 2. Not only did Joseph Smith have the authority to speak for God, but on numerous occasions he validated his messages by uttering the very words Isaiah predicted he would say, Thus saith the Lord. And we see that expression in many sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph Smith's life work was to bring the house of Israel again to the Lord. Joseph Smith was also commissioned to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore them by overseeing the latter-day gathering of Israel. Joseph Smith is spoken of in the Scriptures as a light unto the Gentiles. That's in section 86, verse 11. Only one other person can claim that distinction, and that is the Lord himself in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. Joseph Smith was both despised and revered, just as the Lord had predicted. Joseph was also promised that the, the gospel he restored would be preached before kings and rulers. That's in section 1, verse 23. Joseph Smith was the servant through whom the eternal gospel covenant was reestablished. Surely it is not just coincidence that Doctrine and Covenants section 1, the revelation by which the Lord introduces Joseph Smith to the world, begins with the same language as Isaiah chapter 49 verse 1. Just as Isaiah had foretold, the prophet Joseph was also commanded to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the gospel of salvation. So that, again, is a summary of the first part of this chapter and with that um, incredibly helpful commentary about who it is that this servant could be. And then here is a summary of the second half of the chapter, again from Ogden and Skinner. Israel remonstrates with a series of complaints. Verse 14 is complaint number one. The Lord forsook and forgot Israel. Some in Israel felt wronged by the Lord. They felt severely punished through their sufferings due to political oppression, exile, famine, plague, and more. Verses 14 through 16 answer, But he will show them that he hath not, uh, in other words, hath not forgotten. A powerful attachment is expressed. Graven on palms of hands are the nail wounds in the Savior's hands. Far from forsaking them, he gave his all for them. Quote, Greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends, unquote. That's John chapter 15, verse 13. Christ paid the ultimate price for our sins. He cannot forget us because he has the evidence of that price in his hands and feet. In verse 18, we read, the covenant people of Israel will eventually be clothed and ornamented, that is, prepared as a bride for the bridegroom, as reflected in various scriptures. See, for example, Matthew chapter 25 and Doctrine and Covenants section 33. Now Ogden and Skinner talk about this second complaint, which is reflected in verse 21, and it is that Israel has lost all her children. Then here's the answer in verses 22 and 23. The Lord will raise a standard or ensign, for example, the church, the Book of Mormon, and the everlasting covenant, and bring the children of Israel back to their promised inheritance. Is the Lord talking about Jews in the Holy Land or the Israelites broken off inhabiting the Americas? Isaiah speaks to all Israel, which assures multi-level fulfillment. Kings and queens and other political leaders will be nursing fathers and mothers in helping restore the remnants of Israel. Note one fulfillment of this prophecy in the following excerpt from Orson Hyde's dedicatory prayer, 
given on the 24th of October in 1841 on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Quote, Let the land become abundantly fruitful when possessed by its rightful heirs. Let it again flow with plenty to feed the returning prodigals who come home with a spirit of grace and supplication. Incline them to gather in upon this land according to thy word. Let them come like clouds and like doves to their windows. Let the large ships of the nations bring them from the distant isles. And let kings become their nursing fathers and queens with motherly fondness, wipe the tear of sorrow from their eye. Thou, O Lord, did once move upon the heart of Cyrus to show favor unto Jerusalem and her children. Do thou now also be pleased to inspire the hearts of the kings and the powers of the earth to look with a friendly eye towards this place and with a desire to see thy righteous purposes executed in relation thereto. Let them know that it is thy good pleasure to restore the kingdom unto Israel, raise up Jerusalem as its capital, and constitute her people a distinct nation and government." That, of course, gives us understanding as to the physical or temporal nature of the gathering of Israel. However, it's only a piece to the puzzle, and we have yet to see its ultimate fulfillment. More importantly, though, we can understand the spiritual nature of this gathering and understand that while there is a land or geographic Israel, and while there is a lineal Israel, those who have descended from Jacob, there is most importantly a covenant Israel that calls to all and makes it possible for all mankind, all of those for whom the Lord has been redeemed, to gather to covenant Israel. In closing this chapter, I would like to add my personal witness that when it says in verse 16 that, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands, that that's something that each one of us as readers can take very personally. That brings us then to the end of 1 Nephi chapter 21. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.